one of the things that uh, I loved doing as uh, a little boy and a young teenager, uh, didn't like it so much in my older teenage years, I guess that's kind of normal, but uh, in my younger years, I enjoyed helping my dad with, with his projects around the house. Uh, if he was doing it, I wanted to know how it was being done and what I could do to help and so forth. And, and I, I learned a lot uh, doing that. Just, uh, you know, even today, I use, utilize a lot of the things that he taught me uh, in those moments at those times. Uh, but there was one particular part of uh, helping him out that I did not enjoy. There was one part of it that uh, uh, didn't happen every time I helped, but it happened enough that uh, when I saw it happening, I, I would try and perhaps excuse myself, find a way out of it. And that was the holding the flashlight reality, okay, where, um, you know, he's dealing with something that's kind of in the dark, something that he can't quite see, something he can't quite make out, and he wants me to hold that flashlight so he can see it. And uh, I never seemed to hold that flashlight just in the right place. It was always move here, move there, do this, do that. Uh, there was no pleasing him in those moments. Now, I didn't really understand it at the time, but as I grew older, began to work around my own house and so forth, you know, when, when I was in my 20s, no problem. I had no problem seeing any of that. I had no problem doing any of that. It was all just right there. But as I got into my late 30s and late 40s, my eyesight began to change. Um, I wear bifocals now. Um, and uh, I came to understand exactly why that flashlight was so important. It was uh, everything. You could not do the project, could not carry out that task without seeing what you were doing. The light shined into those shadows, into those dark spaces, and it made apparent what needed to happen. It made apparent what needed to take place. It, 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 your screwdriver, where it went, your, your wrench, where it went, those sorts of things. And, and as, I, as I thought about that this week in, in preparing for this message, um, I thought about you know, the reality of how that's true in our spiritual lives as well, that we need that light in just the right place. We need the light of Christ shining, convicting, correcting, uh, clarifying those things that need fixing, those things that need to be repaired, those things that that uh, need a tool, need something to uh, apply to them. And, and that's what the light of Christ does. It, it shines in the shadows, and it brings light to what needs to be fixed. This morning, as we continue in our journey through the miracles of the Gospel of Mark, we come to a miracle that uh, is different than the others. Okay, so far as as we've dealt with these miracles, we've seen Jesus do things uh, out of compassion. We've seen Jesus do things uh, to begin to correct some bad theology in in some places when when the reaction was not what was uh, appropriate and so forth. But the miracle we see today seems to be intentionally driven towards the issue of correcting wrong concepts of what it means to be a follower of God. And, and in particular, it, it seems to be shining a light into the shadows, into the darkness of the hearts of the religious leadership there in Capernaum, in the synagogue as Jesus visits it. Um, the, the whole interaction seems to be driven by his desire to shine a light on the hypocrisy, shine a light on the sin, shine a light on the 
the, the evil that dwelled within the heart of these religious leaders. And, and as we look at this miracle this morning, it, it's quite easy for us, quite easy for me to say, yeah, those Pharisees, yeah, they just never understood Jesus. They never understood the Word. They, they were all about themselves. They were all these things. But in reality, what God is calling us to, and the reason this story is here, is not so that we can look at the Pharisees and say, look what they're doing and look how they view the world and look how they relate to people. It's so that we can look at ourselves and say, look at how we relate to people and how we view the world and where we need to be corrected. The light that shined on them in that moment needs to be shined on us in our circumstances so that we can respond, so that we can navigate in uh, through life in a way that correctly demonstrates and highlights who Jesus is to us and who we are to be to the world around us. So let's look here in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and, and, and see what's going on here and see what Jesus highlights here and ask ourselves, examine ourselves as to whether or not we're more with the Pharisees or more with Jesus. And in those places where we're more with the Pharisees, how can we move to being closer to who Jesus would have us be? Beginning in verse 1, it says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they, that is the Pharisees, were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, Stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And after looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts, to what you would have us understand about ourselves this morning. Help all of us to evaluate, to assess, to, to understand where we are in relationship to you and, and where we should be. Help us, Lord, to, to turn to you to respond to your instruction and to learn how to love our neighbor. Lord, we, we praise you for the fact that you don't leave us to ourselves, that you are committed to reaching out to humanity. May we develop that same commitment. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things that, that really stands out about <clears throat> this particular narrative, one of the, one of the, the, the exchanges that, that I think really speaks to me is, in terms of its difference, is right there in verse 3, where Jesus says, He told the man with the shriveled hand, Stand before us. In most of the early interactions we've seen between Jesus and those who are needing healing, it was more of a, let's come over here and, and I'll heal you over here. Or they were coming to Jesus and so forth and, and that sort of thing. And, and when the healing was done, he says, what? Don't tell anybody what happened here. 
Okay, most of what we've seen in Mark so far has been Jesus trying to correct and control and, and define who he was as a Messiah, who he was as the Lord, what he came to actually do to, to, to feed the heart, to feed the soul, to, to transform humanity. That's most of what we've seen here. But here, Jesus is standing in, in the synagogue, and the synagogue in Capernaum was, was actually a, a rectangular room just like this, not quite this size, but not too much smaller than this. And um, he he had the man, he said, stand here in front of everybody. Okay, Get up and stand right in the middle of the room. And he, he, he's, he's doing this because, again, he's trying to, to, to highlight the hearts of the, the Pharisees here. Verse 4, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? That's the question he asks. He doesn't address the man who's being who's about to be healed at all. He addresses the audience. He addresses the Pharisees. This is his purpose here. This is his focus here. Now, what is it about the Pharisees? What is it about their reaction, about their response that, that Jesus is trying to address? Well, we're told here, it's, he said, it says that he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. That is, that their hearts were not tender, their hearts were not compassionate, their hearts were not people-centered. Their hearts were not God-centered. Their hearts were law-centered. Their hearts were centered on their standards and their realities, not on what God would have them be focused upon. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think there are several things we see in this text and in other places in, in terms of interaction with the Pharisees that we can, we can begin to understand what a hard heart looks like and, and how it develops. I think the first thing we see in terms of the Pharisees in, in this passage and elsewhere is that they confused human law with God's law. They, they, they combined the two. They, they, they ignored, in some cases, God's law and, and gave the priority to their human law, to their human rules. And again, I think we see that so often in the church today. Too often in the church today. We become a, a, a people who are more about our standards and our rules and, and our precepts and our traditions and our customs and our way of doing things than really asking what is it that God would have us do in this situation, in this circumstance. We become a people who define uh, others and who divide others based upon whether they're in our camp or in some other camp. We've developed in the church a mindset of, us against them in terms of how we interact with the world. And because of that, because of that mindset, we become uh, uh, people who are, or who are very monolithic and, and all cut really from the same cloth. We don't see the diversity in the church that we ought to see. We don't see the, the people from different cultures. We don't see people from different races. We don't see different people from different political parties. We don't see people from different from different economic backgrounds. We all pretty much look the same. And that's because of the standards that we've set up that God himself never established. We become more about prevention than reclamation. This is what we see in the Pharisees here. They're about not doing something. They're about stopping something from happening instead of about seeing people come in and seeing people change and seeing people transformed. 
they define themselves by their pursuit of God rather than defining their work as God's pursuit of man. And that's what we need to understand. They had developed a, a false purity, a, a false sense of, of being the, 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 the people of God. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that's a, a part of their mindset? Well, there's two things, I think, uh, in, this, in this narrative that, that make that very clear. That it wasn't a true purity. It wasn't a, a God-centered purity that they were seeking. Number one, I, I think you see it when it says there in verse 6, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians. Now, who were the Herodians? And, and why does Mark even make a note of that? The Herodians were a secular political group. Okay? And their purpose, their reason for existence was to keep Herod, Herod's lineage, Herod's line in power. That was their purpose. That was their goal. That's all they were about. They didn't care about religious issues. Uh, they, most of them were not even Jews. They were Edomian. That is, they were descendants from the Edomites. Um, as were Herod and all of his family. They weren't even Jewish. Okay, Their purpose was, we want to stay in power. We want to be the ones in authority. We, we want to, to make the rules. We want to control the circumstances. And you saw that dynasty develop there with, with Herod the Great and then the, the Tetrarchy and then Herod Agrippa uh, over, over basically a 50-year span or so uh, ruling over Israel in this time. That's who the Herodians were. They were not at all spiritually driven in their motivations or in their desires. And yet what? The very first thing that the Pharisees do in the circumstance and the situation is they're going to partner with them. Why? Because it was convenient. Because they were the people in power. Because the Pharisees said the Herodians may be messed up, but... At least we know that we can be who we are and who we want to be in their midst. And so we're going to partner with them against this Jesus person because it suits our purposes. And in the church today, too often we've become too politically centered. I don't, I don't talk about politics. I don't address politics very much at all. I don't desire to. I don't think that's what we're about. But I am concerned that the church has become more about the political rule in this country than we are about the lost souls that we interact with. We've become too much about preserving that and protecting the people who, quote, see things as we do than about actually ministering to people. I want to be a church where everybody's welcome, where everybody's invited in, where everybody feels like, they are loved here. And I think we can do that by, both, by still proclaiming the truth about who God is and what God expects and, and loving people alongside those two things. Those are not mutually exclusive things. Jesus never apologized for the truth, and yet he never pushed someone away because they weren't, quote, like him. You see his... That balance here, and it's what we need to possess, it's what we need to be passionate about. The Pharisees will partner with whoever as long as it 
furthers our goals. The second reason I think that this, this purity is false is at the end there of verse 6. They plotted together for what purpose? To see how they might kill him. Now, I want you to think about this exchange. They've just had this exchange with Jesus about the Sabbath. They just saw this man with the withered hand there, okay? And they're like, okay, let's see if Jesus is actually going to heal this guy on the Sabbath. Because if Jesus does, then what? He's broken the law. Not God's law, our law, but he's broken the law, and therefore he's not a righteous individual, okay? So we're all concerned about the Sabbath and, quote, keeping the Sabbath. But as soon as this event's over, what are they doing? Where are they going? Let's murder him. You see the hypocrisy? You, you see the struggle there? We're going to preserve the Sabbath, and we're going to murder somebody. Okay? This, this, is, this is so often what happens. We have our pet sins that we're all about. We don't do those things. I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Okay? Those sorts of things. We, 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 have, we have those pet Sins that that uh, that we're all good about, and guess what? I've never met a person who had a pet sin that um, actually who was sincere about it, who actually struggled with that sin. We're real good about being judgmental about the sins we don't struggle with. Okay, let me just say this. Let me just remind you of this. I think I've said it before. If I haven't, shame on me. You don't get to choose the sin you're tempted by. Why is that important? Because as we interact with people, as we engage with people, and they're struggling with the sin we don't struggle with, we need to, we need to remember they didn't pick that sin to struggle with. They didn't pick that temptation to be drawn by. Just like we didn't pick the temptation we're tempted by. And so we need to have compassion. We need to have love for those people who are struggling with those things. We need, to, we need to see them through that lens. Another aspect of the Pharisaic mindset that we see here is that they viewed people as objects to be manipulated instead of someone to be cared for. For the Pharisees, the man was just a pawn to them. Here's a man who's hurting. He has a withered hand. He's come to worship. He's, he's come to experience God. And, and they're not trying to minister to him. They're not trying to serve him. They're not trying to help him. They're trying to what? Let's use him to see if we can trap Jesus. Instead, Jesus teaches that lives can be transformed, that lives are redeemable. It's not about holding people out. It's about seeing people changed. It's about meeting people where they're at. Gerald O'Collins put it this way. He says, while we look for Jesus among the priests, he's among the sinners. While we look for him among the free, he is with the prisoners. While we look for him in glory, he is bleeding on a cross. The Jesus we, we serve, the, the, the one we worship, the one we love, has gone to great lengths to connect with a people who are lost and hurting. Walter Brueggemann defines the, the message of the Bible with two simple sentences. It's the resistance of the created 
met by the resolve of the Creator. That's the story of the Bible. It's our resistance to God. It's our, our pushing back against God. It's our, our, it's our saying, we don't need you, God. And God's resolution, His resolve, His commitment to see us brought in, to see us rescued, to see us redeemed, to see us transformed, even to the point of dying on the cross, a cursed, horrible death, a form of execution so significant it gave birth to a significant word for pain, excruciating, comes from the word crucifixion. That's what Jesus went through for us. That's the resolve that the Creator has for us. He meets us where we're at. I think the last part of what it means in terms of being a Pharisee and having a hard heart is that they fail to distinguish between not breaking the law and obeying God. Those are two very different ideas. Two very different emphases. Because there are a lot of people who are all committed about not breaking the law. And there's a lot of churches who say that's what our mission is, is to get people to, to not break the law, to, to not, quote, sin. But our goal is not to not break the law. Our goal is to obey God. Let, let me put it this way. Let me illustrate it this way. Over the years, I've, I've had the opportunity, the privilege, the joy in most cases, to, to mentor couples. I, I've, I've worked with couples who have uh, been married for years, older couples. I've, I've worked with couples who are just starting on their journey together in their relationship. I've worked with couples in between. And there have been more than a couple times when in interacting with those, those couples where, where we obviously we talk about love. And what is love? And what does love look like? And in those exchanges, as I said, more than a few times, I've had the husband and occasionally even the wife say, of course I love her. I've never cheated on her. I haven't divorced her. Never abused her. I don't hate her. And it becomes important at that point in the interaction to point out that's not love. That's not love. And following God, that's not following God if we're just talking about the things we haven't done. It's not a matter of not doing the things. It's a matter of what? Obedience that grows out of our love for God, expressing these things, communicating these things, walking in these connections, seeing the whole person, caring for the whole person. So how do we develop a broken heart rather than a hardened heart? What is it that Christ would have us do to, to develop the, the kind of heart that actually connects with the world? I think it starts by taking inventory of our own heart. By, by, by looking at ourselves honestly and asking, if I were in that room, if I were in that synagogue, which side of the debate would I have been on? Would I have been about protecting, quote, the Sabbath? Or would I have been about ministering 
to the hurting. Jesus says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? The doing evil in this case was what? Doing nothing. Doing nothing was the evil in this particular instance. And I think too often we settle into a, a comfort zone of doing nothing, thinking, well, I'm okay because I haven't, quote, broken the law. I haven't, quote, sinned against God. But as we're reminded elsewhere in Scripture, to the person who knows to do right and does not do it to him or her, it is sin. And so we need to take inventory of our heart. We need to look at ourselves honestly. And then as we begin to look at others, as we begin to consider others, we need to, secondly, consider, remember the seriousness of their plight. Hell is real. Being lost, even apart from hell, is real, and it's painful, and it's devastating to lives. To live in an experience, to live in a world without a relationship with Jesus Christ, without a connection to God, without that response, is horrible. And I think if I asked everyone in this room, do you agree with that statement? I think everybody in this room would say, yeah, I agree with that statement. Hell is a horrible reality. Being lost is a horrible reality. But do we really believe it? I mean believe it to the point to where it transforms and changes our disposition toward people, our disposition toward their condition. We find it so difficult we find it so hard to share our faith. Why? If we really believe that a person's well-being here and throughout eternity rests on their relationship with Jesus Christ, and that it's horrible, it's horrendous to be in experience without that, why is it difficult? Why do we let anything stand in our way of sharing our faith? One of the, the early songs that I uh, listened to was uh, by an artist, Keith Green. I don't know if you all know who Keith Green is. He was a, one of the early Christian contemporary artists way back in the 70s. Some of you weren't even alive then, so I get it if you don't know who he was. Okay. But Keith had a very prophetic voice in his songs. And he had a song called Asleep in the Light. Okay. One of the most transformative songs in my own growth as a believer. Okay. And he has a line in that song where he says, Jesus rose from the grave and we can't get out of bed. Okay. And part of his intention there is obvious that he's talking about the power that's present in terms of the resurrection and we don't live in that same power in our own life. But I think another emphasis in that song, especially in light of passages like this, is that what? Jesus went to the grave. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus went through all of that because of his love and his compassion for somebody. And we can't even walk across the street. We can't even pick up the phone. We can't even speak a word of comfort and love to somebody because we don't care enough about them. 
We need to develop a heart that sees the seriousness of their plight. Second, we, we need to understand, the, or third, excuse me, we need to understand the sufficiency of Christ to deal with their condition. That Jesus really is the only way. One of the distinctives of this particular passage that, that really stands out is this is the only place in all the Gospels where the person healed did not ask to be healed. In every other account where Jesus heals somebody, where Jesus cures somebody, they're coming to him. Can you help me? Help me. This sort of thing. Here, this man never speaks. He never does anything. He just, he just sitting there in the synagogue, minding his own business. And Jesus says, get up, stand in the middle of everybody. And now stretch out your hand. And he does. Why is this one different? Because I think the context is different in terms of what Jesus is trying to do. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to, to these Pharisees, to, to everybody in this audience, to us today through the written word, is that it's not our effort that's going to heal us. It's not our works. It's not our good deeds. It's not our righteousness. It's not any of that that's going to heal us. Jesus and Jesus alone can bring us salvation, can bring us deliverance, can bring us rescue. And as we minister and as we share and as we reach out and, and communicate to the world and as we develop a heart that's softened to the point to where we're sharing God's message and sharing God's love instead of pushing people away, it's the truth that Jesus alone can do this that's going to drive and motivate and empower that message. Fourth, I think we need to remember our own story. Remember our own story of how Jesus saved us. Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember the, the change? Do you remember the excitement? Do you remember the joy? Do you remember the, the, just the peace that you felt? I was only eight years old when I came to Christ. And there's a lot of what I experienced and a lot of what went on theologically and otherwise that I didn't understand at the time. But what I did know was that I had a future. I had somebody going into that future with me now that wasn't there before. I had a new way of handling that future that I didn't have before. And so I was excited about it. And, and I remember going to school and telling everybody, man, I accepted Jesus in my heart this, this past Sunday. And I remember some of them were like, well, that's pretty cool. And some of them were like, that's stupid. I remember that. And you know what? Neither response mattered to me because I knew how amazing my experience was. I knew what I was enjoying. I knew what I was experiencing. And I was going to tell everybody who would listen about what it was and what I was experiencing. And I'll be honest, I've lost that. I've lost that. I've lost that sense of wonder and awe Oh, there are times when I meditate on it and think about it, and it, it overwhelms me once again, and I'm just moved by the goodness of God and what He's done and what He's seen me through and what He's brought me through in my 50 years of life. I, I, there, there are times when I experience that, and, and, and it, it's there again. 
But what too often happens is in the, the midst of experiencing that, I push it down. I say, yeah, that, that's great, Lord. Thank you. And I mean it. But then life starts to come in. And things need to be fixed. And assignments need to be made. And papers need to be graded. And sermons need to be prepared. And all of that joy and awe and wonder that I was experiencing seems to just kind of fade away. And as a result, I don't share that goodness with those who are around me. And that's the next thing that we need to practice in terms of maintaining a soft heart, preventing a hardened heart, is that we, we need to act when led. When we feel Spirit moving us, whether it's a corrective voice that says, you should have ministered there. You should have helped that person. You should have of, of fed that person. You should have reached out to that person. You should have shared the truth of who I am with that person, whatever it is, some corrective voice, or, or maybe it's a more positive. Man, this is what Christ has done for you. Tell somebody. Tell somebody. Things, are, things while they're not going perfectly, I'm seeing you through this. Tell somebody. Whether it's the corrective or the, the positive, we need to act when we're led. Because every time we say no, every time we push that encouragement away, every time we, we, we did reject that correction, it becomes easier to do it the next time. And that's where a hard heart comes from. We've said no so many times. We've said not now so many times. We've said... And it's just not the right situation so many times that we don't even hear God's voice anymore sometimes. We don't even realize when it's a good time to share because we've just turned off that receptivity in our hearts. That's what a hard heart is. And so we need to act when we're led. And all of that comes together in what? in praying for God to increase our love, to increase our compassion, to open our eyes, to break our hearts, to help us to see things in a different way than we saw them before, to move past our, our pettiness and, and, our, and our momentary desires and decisions and, and motivations, to see the eternal, to see the whole person, that needs to be ministered to, their spiritual being, their physical being, their emotional being, all of that is what we've been called to engage and all of that we've been called to, to interact with. That's what having the tender heart of Jesus leads us to. That's what we need to be asking for in sincere prayer before the throne of God. And when that becomes a part of who we are, when that becomes a part of our prayer, when that becomes our earnest desire, we will see the revival that we so often say we want to see. We'll see the transformation in ourselves, in this church, in this community, in this state, in this nation, on this planet, when we start dealing with ourselves first 
and say, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Give me a tender heart to the plight of those around me. Yes, it's risky. Yes, it opens us up to all sorts of hurt and pain and disappointment. But it's what we've been called to when we were called to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you you be with us, that you guide us, that you, Lord, begin with me. Break my heart. Shape my life. Guide me according to your purpose and plan. Lord, I I pray for those in our church, in our congregation who are hurting. I I know some here today are going through some very difficult circumstances in their life. And I know that in some of those situations, there's just not any sense of understanding or or none none of it makes sense, God. So, God, I pray for your comfort and your peace and your healing and your help. I pray that you help us to be compassionate people to our brothers and sisters and to a world that's desperately in need of a message of salvation and hope. Lord, help us to be a people who make a difference. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are living through us. Help us to be obedient to you. Not in terms of avoiding the wrong things, but in terms of following your voice, loving our enemies, sharing your grace and goodness in every part of our life. In Christ's name I pray these things.